have you ever said to yourself, anybody been there? This seems hopeless. Uh, we have friends visiting from California, so it's only appropriate that I use them in a story to start off this morning. Um, uh, John and I were starting some sort of project, um, and we needed tools, and we didn't have a trailer, so we found a trailer from a friend who would let us borrow a trailer. And that should be strike one. If someone offers their equipment to you readily, maybe you don't want to borrow it. But we borrowed the trailer. We didn't have one. We needed a trailer, and so we, we borrowed it, and we attached it to the truck. And, and I'm sitting in the, the passenger seat. I've really never driven a truck with a trailer. It scares me to death. I have nightmares of a 200-car pileup on the freeway because a fridge fell out or because a tool fell out, and, and that's just more than I can bear on my conscience. So I'm in the, in the passenger seat, and we're driving down a side road, and it's still six lanes, and there's, you know, traffic in the morning and you know no one's going slower than 55 60 65 and uh, we're talking and I look over and I look at John who's driving and I look behind his shoulder and I see the trailer and so the trailer had unhitched from the truck now I I didn't hitch it spirit of full disclosure this trailer had unhitched from the truck and was passing us on the driver's side heading straight into oncoming traffic like a bowling ball, you know, headed right for the center pin. And so in that moment, this seems hopeless. Uh, It was so quick. So there, there was no yelling, no shouting, just watching, no talking, just listening, watching, and waiting. This seems hopeless. There was nothing we could do. What had been done, what was going to have happened, had been set in motion. There was nothing we can do. As we approach Genesis 18 this morning, we're going to see Abraham and Sarah in that same spot. We're going to see Sarah in despair, in depression. Uh, You remember that in Genesis 12, God comes to them and says, let's go, let's go, come on team. We're going to go to a land that I will show you. It's been almost 30 years. This is hopeless. It's been 13 years since Ishmael has been born. This is hopeless. You can imagine Abraham and Sarah looking at God and seeing unmet expectations, unfulfilled promises. You can see despair setting in. You can see depression setting in. And you can imagine that they had tons of questions for God. Hey, God. You know, 30 years ago, it would have been great to just give us a little bit of a snapshot of how long this was going to take. God, is this ever going to happen? Like, are you still working? Are you still involved? You might try to get his attention. God, you remember us, Sarah, Abraham, remember, remember this? We've been there, haven't we? Lots and lots of questions for God. God, why have you allowed this to happen to our family? Will chemo work? Will I ever be employed again? Lots and lots of questions that we have brought to the Lord. And then we read in Revelation 3.20, and and sometimes we read things and they don't seem all that helpful at first glance. Revelation 3.20 is where, you know, Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock, and if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in. And that sounds really great, unless you don't hear anyone knocking. And you think, I would love to let someone in. I would really love love to let Jesus in, but I don't, don't hear anyone knocking. Flip the coin. Maybe you do hear knocking. Maybe you do hear voices. But you're pretty sure you shouldn't let them in. 
All we long for is for God to be real for us. We'd give anything for him to show himself. We take matters into our own hands, justifying it with things like, well, God hasn't done anything, so someone needs to do something. We disengage. Well, if God was going to say something, he would have said it. We lean on our own understanding. Well, this makes sense to me. Nothing else is happening. I want you to see from Genesis 18, we're going to look at just the first 15 verses this morning, but from the first nine, that we serve an intensely relational God. And if God is a relational God, we are never alone. If God is a relational God, he is never far from us. If God is a relational God, he hears the things that we say, and as we'll see today, he hears the things that we don't say, that we think. If God is a relational God, we are never alone. We are never on our own. We are never by ourselves. Turn to Genesis chapter 18. If you have your Bibles, we're going to read the first nine verses together from that chapter. First nine verses. Starting in verse one, it says this. It says, and the Lord appeared to him, talking about Abraham, by the oaks of Mamre, as he sat on the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and he looked and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to earth. And he said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that it may refresh yourselves. And after you and after that, you may pass on since you have come to your servant. So they said, do as you have said, verse 6. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah, and he said, quick, three says of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd, and he took a calf, tender and good, and he gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took the curds of, and milk and, ca- and the calf that he had prepared, and he set it before them, and he stood by them under the tree while they ate. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. So the narrator in the text draws our attention to the fact that the Lord is present. They're not just three strangers, not just three travelers, not just three angels, that the Lord himself is present here with Abraham. Abraham doesn't know it yet, but that the Lord himself is present with Abraham. And Abraham springs into action. Now, most likely, he had worked a full day, and he was getting ready for his afternoon nap. And so you kind of envision someone sitting on the front porch he's tired maybe he's dozing in and out and three visitors show up and he kind of springs into action and he goes into full-on hospitality mode which would have been expected in his culture if you had guests and so we see abraham's hospitality right he he springs into action he moves quickly it says it three times that he moves quickly he promises a morsel and then delivers a feast he actually waits on them himself and initiates all of this work, giving his best to his visitors. And so we could talk a lot about hospitality this morning. We're not going to, but it's interesting that two texts in the New Testament that talk about what an elder is in a church, the role of an elder, the expectations of an elder, two texts include the statement that the an elder should be hospitable. And so it's far more than just something that is culturally normative. It's something that is a function of a person caring about others and using their resources, the things the Lord has trusted them, for the good of other people. I'd encourage you, uh, whether you've been here for 10 years or whether you've been here, this is your first Sunday, to consider 
inviting someone over to your home for dinner, inviting someone out to lunch after church. You will be amazed when you practice hospitality. You will be amazed when you invest into other people in this way, the returns that the Lord brings in your own life. You will be amazed when you give what you have to others the way the Lord gives to you in ways that will just far exceed what you can ever imagine. We are relational beings made in the image of a relational God. This is God himself coming to sit with Abraham, right? God could have sent Abraham a message, text, uh, sent an angel to go do his bidding. He comes and he sits with Abraham. And in the unfolding passage, uh, the next chapter or two, God is going to walk with Abraham. God is going to explain his plans to Abraham. God is even going to allow Abraham to weigh in on some of the things that are happening. This is not something that you do when you don't value a person. This is not something that you do when you're all about the end game. God comes and has a meal with Abraham. And so uh, we see this relational quality of God from cover to cover. If you have your Bibles, turn to John 1. Uh, We read in John 1, uh, it says, In the beginning was the Word, right? And the Word was with us, the Word was with God. We read later that the Word, Jesus, came and dwelt among us. And so we see this, this kind of language all over the Bible that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit have eternally existed in relationship far beyond, far before the creation of the world. They're active together in creation. They're working together. The Son says what the Father does, does what the Father does. We serve a relational God. We should expect a relational God to relate to, to his creation in relational ways. I think about uh, my own father, my dad is a, is a generous person. Uh, he loves to get things for his kids, and he loves to get things for his grandkids. So I have seen that pattern, and so I expect it. It doesn't shock me when he gets the kids something. If, if Legos show up in the mail, it's not surprising. It's not shocking because it's consistent with the way that he is. It's consistent with his pattern. We serve a relational God who relates to his people in relational ways. Consider Jesus. I mean, there's so many aspects of uh, Jesus coming to earth that we might have questions about. Isn't it interesting that God's chosen means to provide deliverance for us, including include Jesus coming and living and growing up year after year after year? There had to have been a shorter, quicker way to get that done. We see that we serve a relational God and he relates to his people in relational ways and that's really good for us. Uh, One of the ways that it's good for us is that if God is relational, uh, we can assume that he loves us not simply for what we can do, uh, but for who we are. We assume that he loves us for who we are, not just for what we can do. It kind of makes me think of cell phones. We love our cell phones. We spend a lot of money on our cell phones. We put insurance on our cell phones to protect our cell phones. We put cases on our cell phone to protect our cell phone. We use them all the time. Some of you use them for all of your banking. Some of you use them for social media. Some of you use them to check the stock market. If you want to go out to dinner in Roseburg after 7 o'clock, you can get on your phone and you can find a restaurant. And there is one, at least, that's open after 7 p.m. And you can find directions to that restaurant. You can even look at the menu to see what you want to get, because it's probably going to close at 7.30, and you need to order as soon as you get there. We love our cell phones until a new one comes out, right? And then when a new one comes out, when a shinier model with more memory comes out, the old one gets kicked to the curb or maybe given to the kids, which is equivalent of a doggy chew toy at that point. We love our phones 
until a shinier model comes out. We love our phones until we drop it in the toilet or we drop it in the river and it gets soaked and it doesn't turn on every time we press the on button. It starts to not work like we've expected it to work. It doesn't do for us what we want and need it to do for us. And so isn't it neat that the Lord doesn't treat us like we treat our cell phones? Isn't it neat that he doesn't discard us when a shinier model becomes available? Isn't it neat that he doesn't discard us when maybe we become less productive, less useful than maybe we might have been at one point? God is relational. He loves us, not simply for what we can do, He loves us for who we are. Uh, That's a big deal. It means that I can go to him when things are going well, and it means I can go to him when things aren't. It means I can go to him when I'm on the straight and narrow, and it means that I can go to him and be welcomed and received by him even when I've taken a significant detour. Sometimes sometimes we go to God like a a student goes to a parent with a bad report card. And if, if the report card's good, the student comes home and check this out. All A's. Of course I got all A's. Of course... And it shows everyone. Maybe gets on the phone with grandpa and grandma and tells a report card. What do you do if you failed PE? You run home and you say, look at my report card, chest out. Or do you maybe find a way to get to your friend's house before going home and get home later than normal so that you don't have to have that conversation and maybe go straight to your room when you get home so you can avoid the report card altogether. Some of us go to God only when things are are going well, when we've got good things to report. And it, and it shows that in our heart there's desire to prove worthy rather than a desire to run to the one who's worthy himself. God is relational, so he loves us not simply for what we can do, but for who we are. This also matters because it frees us to love others. It frees us up to love others. It's interesting in a week where we've seen a couple high-profile people take their own lives, we've seen... uh, clearer snapshot than maybe what we get on other weeks of the brokenness that is pervasive in culture, right? The brokenness that is pervasive in culture. And so a person who is broken at that level creates more brokenness around them, right? These these two individuals that have taken their life, there's a ripple effect of brokenness that has been a pattern and now is, is even heightened in their absence and in the questions and in the grief and in the despair of their uh, sudden departures. The flip side of that is true. Uh, if we don't get this thing of God's love for us, this unconditional love that he has for who we are, not simply for what we do, uh, we become uh, virtually incapable of giving that love to others. And when we do get it, it overflows out of us. When we do get it, it overflows out of us. Uh, second, God is relational, so he hurts when we hurt, think about Lazarus, the shortest passage in the Bible. Jesus wept. His good friend has died, and we find Jesus weeping. We find Jesus emotional on many occasions uh, in the New Testament. He hurts when we hurt. He sees our hurt. God is relational. Uh, he wants, he advocates for, he navigates, negotiates uh, for our good. How many of you have landline phones? Okay, there's a few. If you have a landline phone, you probably get a lot of computer-generated sales calls, right? And so when your landline phone rings, you don't run to the phone and just snatch it, anticipating some dear friend who you haven't heard from in years calling just to see how you're doing. 
you, what do you say? See who it is. Because if it's a salesman, you know they don't want good for you. They want something from you. And so you're not going to interrupt dinner. Uh, you're not going to pause from what you're doing. You're not going to turn the TV off to entertain a conversation from a salesman. You say, see who it is, because they probably want something from me. Sometimes we go to God like that reaction that we have when a salesman calls. Ugh. What does he want? He must want something from me. And so just what we see from cover to cover is that this good relational God navigates, negotiates, arranges, sets circumstances in place to bring about his good. That's why we camped on that verse a while back uh, where Jesus said, I came that you might have life and have it abundantly because it's a fundamental aspect of following Christ that we understand who he is and what he wants for us. Jeremiah 29, 11 says, I know the plans that I have for you, saith the Lord. Plans for good. Psalms 119, 105 says, Your word is a lamp unto my feet and the light unto my path. Sometimes we think that God doesn't want good for us, wants to keep us in the dark, and wants to make life more confusing every day with him. He says, Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. It's his desire for to bring clarity, not confusion. It's his desire that his word is a guide not a mask with a hood over it that makes it so we can't see where we're going, can't see obstacles or trip hazards along the way. First Timothy 2, 4 says, God wants all people to be saved. So regardless of where we've been or what we've done, we understand from the entire scripture, from the entire text, that God wants a better future for us. Not only is God relational, he's powerful, right? Uh, as you think about Christianity, as you think about following God, as you think about Scripture, something that reveals God to us, uh, wouldn't you expect that given the brokenness that we see around us, given the brokenness that we read about in Genesis chapter 3, where the Lord basically lays out the difficulty that is in store for all mankind as a result of Adam and Eve's sin, uh, and, it's, and it's ugly, that, those are the verses where uh, the Lord goes to Eve and says, I will multiply your, cha- your pain during childbirth. Your desire will be for your husband, but he will rule over you. I mean, how much of life is boiled down to now marital conflict and, and even uh, for ladies that, f- that physical pain? And so we see those things and we're reminded, ah, yeah, the world is broken. He goes to Adam and he says, you're going to have to work. You're going to have to work really hard. It's going to be by the sweat of your brow that you're going to put food on the table. The ground is going to work against you with thistles and thorns. Everything you try to do is going to be opposed by nature. It's going to be difficult for you. And so we go to work and we struggle and we strain at work and we have good relationships at work and bad relationships at work, good days and bad days, but we're perpetually reminded that we're in opposition with something. There's a tension there. A perpetual conflict. And so we're reminded, yeah, the world is broken. And so wouldn't it be meaningful of the Lord then to spend a whole bunch of time here making the case to those of us who open this up, those of us who want to follow him, him making the case to us that no matter how broken things are, he can make things right. No matter how much decay there is in the world, he can make all things new. No matter how far we've slidden backwards, no matter what kind of past we have, that he has a better future for us. Let's read verses 9 through 15. God comes to Abraham and Sarah. 
Abraham serves the Lord, and now he's going to deliver a message to Abraham and Sarah. And really, Sarah then becomes the focal point uh, of the Lord's words. Verses 9 through 15, I want you just to simply see that we serve a God who is all-powerful. The three guys are eating. They say to him, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, she is in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year. And Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of a woman had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, am I worn out and my Lord is old? Shall I still have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything, verse 14, is anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything too hard for the Lord? And at the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I didn't laugh, for she was afraid. He said, no, no, but you did. He says, no, but you did laugh. At some point, they end their meal. At some point, the three individuals begin a conversation uh, with Abraham we see the Lord ask Abraham, where is Sarah? Abraham might point over there, and so now there's this awareness that Sarah's there, Sarah's in the tent, and you can imagine Sarah listening by the, the wall. What are they talking about? Who are these men? Where did they come from? It says she's old and he's old, and they both know that they're old, and they both call each other old, and they both have identified themselves as old Certainly uh, some speculate on this text and say part of the reason it has taken so long is to show how impossible it would be for a child to be born to Abraham and Sarah. That it wasn't just God working slow, God getting preoccupied, or Abraham and Sarah's sin delaying God's plan, but that the longer they waited, the more they became convinced that what God had promised was humanly impossible. That it almost causes God just to kind of lean forward and go, oh, impossible. <laughs> Hold on. Let's wait 13 more years. The Lord says, at this time next year, I will be here, and Sarah will have a son. Sarah looks around and says, yeah, I've heard that before. It's been 30 years. Look at this. You're crazy. This isn't happening. No way. It's impossible. In verse 14, what does the Lord say? Is anything too hard for the Lord? Sarah's response was not merely shock. Sarah's response was not merely confusion. Right? Did he point to me? Was God talking about me? By Sarah, Sarah and Abraham, someone else fitting into that equation? What, what, what's that? Uh, Sarah's response is to doubt the promise-keeping willingness of God. Sarah's response is to doubt his goodness, to, dis, to doubt his power, that he can bring about what he's promised, even though the odds seem insurmountable. I want to pause for a minute and just consider doubt some of you are familiar with James chapter 1, and, and James says in the context of asking for wisdom, if we ask and we're double-minded, we ought not to ask for anything, 
from the Lord. If we ask and we're double-minded, we ought not to ask for anything from the Lord. The only way I can think to put this maybe into present-day circumstances, imagine you haven't seen an adult son or daughter for 10 years. You know, they've basically said, we want nothing to do with you. We wish you were dead. They've gone off. They've lived their lives. Maybe they've stolen from you on the way out. Maybe they've bad-mouthed you to every family member, uh, to everyone that you know on their way out, and they show up 10 years later on your door asking for money. And it hurts that they've asked for money because what you're seeing is a glimpse into their heart that they don't understand what they've done to themselves. They don't understand the pain they've caused you. The pain they've caused you doesn't register to them as something tragic. And you know that even though you so badly want to maybe even do what they've asked, that you see that even if you were to do it, it would be for no good in their lives. And so it's an inauthentic ask. It's an ask that comes from layers of, of sin, of justifying. And you know, even if I were to do everything that this person asked me to do, it would accomplish no good in their life. And so James says, if that's the way that you approach God, don't ask for anything. We read multiple times in the New Testament where Jesus comes into a community, sees that there's no faith, and it says he couldn't do miracles in their midst. He couldn't do miracles in their midst. So when, like Sarah, we look around and we see our circumstances and it's despair. We see our circumstances and it's decades of despair. And it's become depression and it's caused all sorts of ripples effects of ugliness in life. We want to burrow into the Lord. We want to go to him, not from him. We want to bring to him our pain, not sit on it, squash it, hide it, demean it, diminish it, belittle it, minimize it. We want to run into him. Consider uh, Psalms 73. If you have your Bibles, this is a pretty neat passage. Psalm 73 is, is David writing, and uh, it's a wonderful glimpse into his heart and a wonderful glimpse into what the Lord has for us uh, when we think about the Lord as a place of rest. Uh, Psalm 73, the, the first 15 verses or so, basically are David saying, everyone else's life looks good but mine. All these wicked people have this and this and this and they're living so comfortably and they have these great jobs and they have great health and their marriages are wonderful. Their kids are happy and healthy, are getting straight A's and are going to Harvard and doing all these wonderful things. And my life, oh. David says, I'm even following God. Like, what's the deal? Aren't I supposed to get, you know, it's got to be some sort of kickback. Psalm 73, 16 and 17 say this, but when I thought how to understand this, David reflecting, when I thought how to understand my own heart and these things that I'm seeing around me, it says, it seemed to me a wearisome task. I couldn't do it. I couldn't get my mind around it. It was so crushing. I couldn't do it. It seemed to me a wearisome task, verse 17, until I went in to the sanctuary of God. And then I discerned their end. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, and then I discerned their end. David says, it's not fair. It's not working out. And he enters into 
the sanctuary of God, and there he discerns the end of those who are living in opposition to the one true God, and he considers his own end. Sarah has despaired. She has tried to make sense of it on her own. That backfired. How many of us know that it really backfires when we try to make sense of things on our own? It's like being really, really thirsty, and then I hand you a communion cup full of water. It doesn't satisfy. You probably want to just throw it back in my face, but that's what it's like when we try to make sense of things on our own. We try to take matters into our own hands. We want to try to come up with our own solutions and our own timeline. It's not satisfying. It doesn't work, and quite honestly, it's insulting. We have a father that wants to be that deep drink. We have a father that wants to be that full, satisfying, you know, gigantic thermos of water. David says, it was wearisome to me until I went into the sanctuary of God, and there I discerned their end. So true to form, God hears Sarah's laugh in her heart. It doesn't even sound like it came out verbally. The Lord hears And he doesn't just let it go, right? He doesn't just dismiss and say, "Eh, it makes sense. It's been 30 years. I probably should have moved a little bit quicker. He says, "Why why did you laugh? She comes up with an excuse and he says, no, no, you did. You see, God goes straight to the heart. God was not interested in her inauthentic expression of worship, her inauthentic expression of faith that does nothing for Sarah, that does nothing for the Lord, that does nothing to further and advance his kingdom. And when we do it, when we have inauthentic expressions of faith, inauthentic expressions of trust, it just makes us hollowed out shells of would-be Christians where no power, no grace, no love overflows out of. Uh, it's, It's faking it. Sarah says, I didn't laugh. No, no, but she did. This is not God coming down heavy-handed on Sarah. This is a relational and powerful God inviting a broken-hearted elderly woman to enter into his rest. This is a relational and a powerful God inviting a broken-hearted elderly woman to enter into his rest, and it's at that moment that he says, is anything too hard? for the Lord. I don't know where you need to hear that this morning. Is anything too hard for the Lord? It might be in your life. It might be in someone else's life. It might be related to external circumstances. It might be related to your own sin, to an addiction, to lust, to something with drugs. Is anything too hard for the Lord? You know, the Israelites were in slavery for 400 years And Romans 9 talks about the Lord allowing Pharaoh to be hardened, even raising up Pharaoh's influence and power so that he could show himself great to his people, so that their faith would grow, so that they would trust him as they go on this journey for their good future, for his good plans to take place in their life. I'm sure they thought many times, this is hopeless. Even Jesus, we see Jesus wait 400 years, 400 years of silence before Jesus comes. Wouldn't it seem that most of the religiously inclined folks at that point would say, this is hopeless. And he waits 400 years 
And then he comes and he blows their mind, exceeds their expectations. You know, I started by sharing about that stupid trailer. It wasn't either of our faults. We discovered afterwards that it had a crack in, in something, and the person who let us borrow it said, oh, yeah, I meant to get to that. That was cool. You know, uh, it went right through five, six, seven, or eight cars going 50, 60 miles an hour, went straight into an office park, and the, the uh, post piece grabbed the sod, and it stopped inches from uh, an office park sign and a bunch of uh, utilities. No damage. We grabbed, we pulled over, we hooked it back onto the truck, and we just <laughs> we just kept going. It, w- it was impossible. Um, as we wrap up, I, uh, how do we respond to a relational God who, who pursues us in relational ways? How do we respond to an all-powerful God who has all that we need for everything? Because we tend to alienate ourselves from God when we need him most. How do we respond to a relational God who pursues us, loves us for who we are, not for what we can do, and has everything we need for every moment and occasion and circumstance and relationship? Two, two closing thoughts. The first is from Luke 10, verses 41 and 42. And the thought is this. How about we do a little bit less running around and a little bit more sitting? A little bit less running around and a little bit more sitting. Luke 10 is Mary and Martha. Jesus comes to their house. They've probably been waiting for him to come, very excited for him to come. They are good friends, excited for a great meal. And maybe Jesus makes a little bit better time on his donkey than they expected. And he knocks on the door. And Martha's freaking out. The food's not cooked, the floor's not cleaned yet, the bathrooms are still a mess, maybe they had young kids, the bathrooms are still a wreck, and she's freaking out, Jesus, you can't go in there, nobody can go in there. And Jesus comes in, and Mary sits at Jesus' feet and just listens to what he says, just sits in his presence, to use David's words, sits in the sanctuary of the Lord, and listens. And Martha is freaking out. And like a kid whose sibling is not helping clean up when they've been instructed to clean up, Martha comes to Jesus and says, she's not helping. Assuming that Jesus will say, Mary, come on, clean your room. But the Lord answered her, he says, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and you are troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. A little bit less running, a little bit more sitting. Sometimes that means a little bit less doing, a little bit more waiting. Sometimes that means a little bit less clarity, a little bit more fogginess, a little bit less running, a little bit more sitting. The second one is we need to stop looking around so much and start looking forward a little bit more. 
A little bit less looking around, a little bit more looking forward. Uh, turn to 2 Corinthians 4 if you still have your Bibles. The last verse that we'll read today. 2 Corinthians 4, 16, 17, and 18. Uh, listen to what Paul says. He says, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. How often do you daydream about what heaven will be like? How often do you daydream about what God must have in store for those who love him? If there's an all-powerful God who's relational, who loves us, who knows us, How often do you think about what that's going to be like as opposed to will they have ESPN? Will I still know my family? Will my dog come with me or not come with us? Is that something we anticipate? Is that something that we look forward to? Is that something that we find ourselves thinking about, consumed about, looking forward or do we spend most of our time looking around? Obsessing about what we see around us. Nicole and I have a garden project we'd like to do. There are days I spend more time thinking about what could we plant and where could we put blueberries than thinking about God's eternal work in and through my life and what is ahead for me. What is, what is promised? What is waiting? What is that going to be like? If you're here this morning and you're, you're, you're following the Lord and, and you maybe you identify in some way with some of the despair that is set in with Sarah, would you receive the Lord's words? Is it anything too difficult for the Lord? If you're here this morning and you're, you're kind of running wild, uh, you're not on that path. You're not following him. Uh, would you consider that sometimes it's good to move from that wild, I make my own path, choose my own destiny, to surrendering to someone who is all-powerful, who knows you, who pursues you, who loves you, who has good in store for you. We got a, uh, we got a second cow this week, and cow is a wild banshee of an animal, scared to death when we got her. I thought the person who brought her over was playing a joke. We got her in the pen, and the pen was good for her. The pen was comforting for her. The pen was safety for her. The pen was security for her. The pen allowed us to feed her, to provide the needs that she had. We couldn't have done any of that without the pen. The pen was a good place. He didn't want to be in there. And we had to barricade it and turn it into solitary confinement, walls and ceiling. But it was really good for her. And it's totally changed her demeanor. Now we call her smooches. Some of us are like that wild cow, running, freaking out, don't want to be contained in any way, shape, or form. And if we would just breathe for a second and allow the Lord to do his work, we might discover that in his fold, in his arms, there's the protection that we're looking for, the nourishment that we need, 
that he's good. He knows us. He knows what we need. And he's all-powerful on our behalf. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word that it speaks to us. Thank you that it's preserved as it is with the successes and the failures of our heroes. uh, And that in that way, it normalizes some of the things that we experience. It normalizes some of the setbacks that we face. It normalizes some of the detours that we take. And it just keeps pushing us back to you. Lord, I pray that we would allow ourselves to be caught. That you would give us the the foresight, give us the wisdom to say it is not good for us to be alone. It is not good for us to be on our own. We need that pen. Lord, open our eyes up even to our own hearts to understand why we run to understand why, like Sarah, we don't trust, why we doubt that you are a promise keeper, why we doubt that you have power, why we doubt, Lord, that you will make good on the things that you said you would make good. Teach us even this week, Lord, how to rest, how to look forward, Lord, how to run a little bit less and sit a little bit more. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.